So this is going to be a relatively, a relatively, don't get too excited, a relatively short sermon this morning. Um, but there's one particular aspect of, of the scriptures that we're going to cover today as we continue to go over um, the book of Galatians, go through the book of Galatians. One aspect that I really, really want to draw out for you guys, because to me, it is one of the most awe-inspiring, it's one of the most unbelievable aspects of the gospel uh, that really brings us to, a, to an incredible understanding of the fullness of what exactly happened when Christ died for us. What exactly it means when we talk about Christ dying for our sins. This is so big. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to ask you guys, has anybody ever heard of a sin eater? A sin eater? Carl has? Carla, Carl, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all don't spoil it for everybody else, all right? Um, yeah, most most people probably haven't, and and I, and I don't expect that you guys that you guys would. Um, but here it is. Let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about the sin eater. So back in the 18th and 19th centuries, kind of around the areas of Scotland, England, Wales, um, there was a very peculiar practice. There was a very peculiar funeral custom uh, that a lot of people participated in when someone would pass away. Um, and it kind of basically went like this. When a loved one would pass away, the dying family would grieve, and then they would come along and they would place bread on the chest of the deceased person, their, uh, their deceased loved one. And um, after that, they would call for this person who was referred to as the sin eater. And this guy was always a man. It was a man who would come and he would eat that bread that had been placed on that person's chest. Now, why did they do this? I'm sure y'all, why in the world they do something crazy like this? Well, the family believed that the person they had hired, and he was a hired person, uh, the sin eater, they believed that the bread that they had placed on that person's chest literally soaked up the sins of their loved one, of their deceased loved one. And once it had been eaten by the sin eater, all of those sins were passed on to him. All of those sins of the deceased were passed on to the sin eater. And they would pay this guy. They would pay him generally, not a whole lot. They'd pay him generally about the amount of the equivalent of a few dollars today um, in the U.S. The sin eater was generally a, a poor, very poor person, uh, didn't have a whole lot in life to lose. They were, they were severe outcasts in society. Uh, they were shunned everywhere that they went. They really were the lowest of the low as far as society was concerned. And, you know, you add to that that it was believed that because the sin eater was absorbing the sins of all these people, that his soul was heavily cursed with the heaviness of having to carry uh, with them all of these ill deeds of these countless men and these countless women uh, that, they had, that they had absorbed of their sins. In theory, he, he would have played a very super high spiritual price for what he was doing now in 2023 or 21st century minds can kind of laugh at this practice, this, this far-fetched idea and uh, very peculiar custom. And of course any good theology tells us that there is no person, no one can take on, no one can absorb the sins of another human being, right? It doesn't work like that. Well, misguided as our ancestors might have been with this superstitious practice, there is an element of truth and the idea of passing on one's sins to another. The idea of one person literally absorbing the misdeeds of another person. So I think y'all kind of know where I'm going with this. Let's take a look at uh, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. I'm going to read through that, and then we're going to talk about it just a little bit. <clears throat> so we've gotten 
up to the third chapter of Galatians. We're up to verse 10. We're just going to read through 14 this morning. And again, just to catch you up, if you haven't been here, this is the Apostle Paul writing to uh, the churches of Galatia. For all who rely, Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is reckoned as righteous before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the word of God for the people of God. Um, so for you folks who, who haven't been here, uh, that's your first time, or if you haven't been in the last several weeks, let me, let me just remind you real quick because I think this is important for me to throw in there. When I use that phrase, the law, when, I, when you hear me use this, this wording, the law, what we're talking about is all of the Old Testament, even, even the law of Jesus, even all the commands of Jesus. The law were all the Old Testament moral laws, the, what, they, what they used to call the ceremonial laws, the civil laws. All of these laws, all of these commandments that were passed on uh, through Moses. That's what I'm talking about when, when I use this phrase, the law, uh, just, just to catch everybody up as to where we are. So we got some really great stuff going on here in, uh, in verses 10 through 14. Uh, it kind of expands on some of the sim some similar ideas, similar things that we've already talked about um, a good deal as we've gone through the first few chapters of Galatians here. But Paul starts this off really cool. He begins by saying that anyone who is trying to justify themselves through works, through the following of the law of Moses, is literally under a curse. They are spinning their wheels trying to accomplish an unobtainable thing, an unobtainable outcome. So why is that? Well, as he says in verse 10, which, by the way, is a quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, failure to keep just one commandment of the law automatically disqualifies us from salvation. Y'all catching that? Failure to keep just one commandment of the law automatically disqualifies us from salvation. It automatically makes us unclean. It automatically makes us unrighteous. It automatically makes us unable to be reconciled to God. It automatically prohibits us from having any kind of relationship with God whatsoever. Just one failure. Church, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us committed that first failure probably before we were even able to take our first step. So we're done, okay? We need to understand this. We are done. That's it. We are toast, church. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. We cannot ever, under any circumstances, none, nada, zero, zilch, be justified or be made righteous in the eyes of God through attempting to follow the law of Moses. So what do we do? What's the answer to that? If we're so far gone, if we are so far outside the will of God, so completely unable to come even remotely close to following the law, where does that leave us? Where's our hope? Check out verse 13, because everything else we're going to talk about from henceforth 
is all about verse 13. And this is the coolest, coolest thing in the world. And I really hope that I'm able to do, the just, do justice to the vastness and the meaningfulness of what happens here. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. This is the outstanding, astounding hope of the gospel church. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, as we oftentimes like to say. Jesus didn't die for our sins. Jesus actually became our sins. Jesus actually became the curse for us. What does that mean? Y'all, I don't think that I can, I, I'm not smart enough to, to do this thing justice, to do this idea justice. I tried to write it out in my own words and I was just horribly unsuccessful. But let me kind of break this down through the words of a guy named Martin Luther. A lot of y'all have heard of Martin Luther. He was kind of the head of the whole Protestant Reformation about 518 some, some odd years ago. But this is what Martin Luther had to write. And I'm going to expand on it a little bit as I read through it. But there's what, here's what Martin Luther had to say about this idea of the fact that Christ didn't just die for, for our sins. Christ became the sin of the world. He writes this. He says, our merciful Father. This, and this is how he explains it. It's so cool, man. Even 500-year-old language, this is really simple to understand. He writes, our most merciful Father, God, seeing that we were oppressed by the curse of the law and held under its power so much that we never could have freed ourselves in our own strength. What does that mean? It means God recognized our weaknesses. It means he cares. It means he looked down on us. He said, man, these, these, these folks are hopeless, and I don't want them to be hopeless. They can't take care of this in, of, in and of themselves. There's no way possible they're going to be able to follow my righteousness, my holiness. No way possible. What do I do? I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to hurt themselves. I don't want them to hurt other people. What can I do? How do I fix this problem? It isn't about God just wanting to beat us up all the time. What horrible theology is that? God cares so much for us. This is what he decided to do. This is how it happened. This is how this whole thing unraveled. After God recognizes these folks are hopeless, they can't do this in and of themselves. What did he do? He sent his only son into the world. And this is what he told his only son. He said, Jesus, I want you to become that Peter who denied you. I want you to become that Paul, the persecutor and the blasphemer. I want you to become that David, the adulterer and the murderer. I want you to become that sinner, Adam, who ate the fruit in the garden. Become the thieves who hung on the cross for a moment, son. God says to Jesus, become the person who has committed the sins of every human being. And you make sure that you pay the penalty for every one of them. Past, present, That in and of itself gives me chills. So here's what happens after that. Luther writes this. He says, then, then, then the law comes. Then the law comes, and the law appears to Jesus. And the law says this to him. The law says, I find that you are a guilty sinner, and you are such a great sinner 
that you have taken on your body the sins of every creature. You have taken on the sins of every creature. Thus, I see no sins on anyone but you. Therefore, you must die. Then the law lunges against Christ, and the law kills him. But it kills him in such a way that the entire world is purified, and the entire world is cleansed of all sin. And now sin is abolished by this one man. God only sees throughout the whole world not only cleansing, but absolute righteousness. And if there happens to remain some residue of sin through the Christ's glory that outshines the sun, God is unable to see it. What does that mean for us? What does that mean to you? Among other things, it means that no matter where you are in life, no matter what you're doing in the present, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you're going to do in the future, no matter what your sin story happens to be, you still have through Christ Jesus, through the works of Jesus Christ, through the works of Jesus Christ, we are made perfect, we are made righteous, we are made justified, and we are completely reconciled in our relationship with God through this unfathomable act of love. Does that do it justice a little bit, folks? Does that, does that kind of bring this idea home to y'all? The idea of God? God. Remember, this is the per- this is, Jesus is the second person of what we call the Trinity. Jesus Christ is literally God of the universe, come to earth in human form. The idea of God himself, flesh and blood, allowing himself to be pinned to a cross, not to die for our sins, but to actually become everything that we have ever committed in life that is against the holiness, the righteousness, and the law of God just one person, every person. God took, Jesus Christ took on every bit of that. Every bit of it. You know, as we're going to have our communion here in just a minute, and something we're going to say, something you're going to hear me proclaim in our, in our liturgy is that when we turned away and our love failed, God's love remained steadfast. He delivered us from captivity and by the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, we were delivered from slavery to sin and from slavery to death. I want y'all to think about that in the upcoming days. This, this, is, this has really messed with my head these last, these last few days as I've meditated on this idea. I didn't even mention the, the, uh, the scripture from 1 Corinthians, I guess, or 2 Corinthians, I I guess I just overlooked it, but in seven, if you think I'm making up some weird theology, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin. How does that make you feel? That the most perfect person in history ever, God in human flesh, the, most, the only sinless person to ever exist, became your sin, became the sin. What's that song, Kevin? He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus Messiah. 
things on a whole new meaning when you think about it we're going to be forever I just want y'all to think about that man because this will this will uh, if this doesn't bring you to your knees folks I don't, I don't know what, what possibly will this idea that it wasn't just for our sins that Jesus died although it was that but he literally became that sin the sin so as we receive communion this morning, uh, you know we have we, we we think a lot about communion in the Methodist Church. We have a really rich theology of of, of communion and, and what happens during this this sacrament. Uh, but one of those things, of course, is we certainly remember the the, uh, the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of Jesus through the atonement that brings us salvation. So I would just ask you to to uh, to uh, consider to consider that as we go through this communion and uh, this morning and <clears throat> just kind of meditate on that idea that Christ became sin for us.